passage this morning is going to be found in Matthew 21. So if you have a Bible, find Matthew 21, pull it up on your phone. If you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you or under your seat. Matthew chapter 21. Including this morning, we have four parables left. And uh, some of you may be getting nervous that I'm not going to preach on one of your favorite parables. We've got three more weeks. And I saved three of the best for last, so just hang on three weeks. We're not talking about all of Jesus' parables, so it may be that we leave one out that you wish we talked about, but we do have three more weeks after this morning. The one that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew 21, the actual parable begins in verse 28. It's one of the lesser known parables of Jesus. It's one that we're not quite as familiar with. It's called the parable of the two sons. And before we jump in, let me just remind you about some background information. If you've been here the last few weeks, the last couple of months, you know that a parable is a story taken from real life that teaches a moral or a spiritual truth. It's not something you try to decode. It's not some sort of uh, mystery that you figure out what all the symbolism is. It's just a straightforward story taken from everyday life for the people that were listening to Jesus And Jesus is using these stories to teach usually pretty straightforward, pretty simple spiritual truths or moral truths. And even as I say that, one of the things that we've talked about almost every week is that when Jesus teaches in parables or when he taught in parables, he wasn't putting the cookies on the low shelf. He wasn't just trying to make it easy for everyone to understand. In fact, from Jesus' own words, He taught in parables so that some people would get it and other people wouldn't. Meaning, you kind of got to think. You kind of got to engage your heart and your mind when you think about these parables and when you read these parables. And you especially have to know what was going on that led up to Jesus teaching a, a particular parable. That's especially true this morning. If you only look at the parable and you just ignore everything going on in Jesus's life and the conversations that he's having, it's super easy to take this particular parable and to twist it to say any number of things that you would want it to say. So context is super, super important. And I'll just start with this reminder. Jesus told the parable, the one we're about to read, in the last week of his life, immediately after he entered Jerusalem on a donkey and cleared the temple. So I'm just going to put a timeline up. I'm a visual learner. I like to see things visually. So I'm going to put a timeline up. And I know the the print is really small. I've tried to get it all on there. So I'm going to read it to you, okay? This is the last week of Jesus' life, the events that we know happened on different days. On Saturday, Jesus was anointed in Bethany. On Sunday, we call that the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus got on a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem. It was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. They laid the palm branches down. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was on Sunday. On Monday, Jesus has left the city. He's not staying in Jerusalem, but he comes back into Jerusalem and he clears the temple. And if you've read the Gospels, you know it's the second time he's done it. He did it about two or three years earlier. He went in. He ran everyone out of the temple. Now he does it again on Monday. He clears the temple. On Tuesday, he comes back into Jerusalem. And he's teaching in the temple area for a while. And then he leaves Jerusalem. And he goes across the valley to the Mount of Olives. And he teaches some more on the Mount of Olives. So Tuesday, Jesus is doing a lot of teaching and a lot of preaching. On Wednesday... I'm sure he did something, but the Bible doesn't tell us what he did. So Wednesday Wednesday was like a a free day. Thursday, celebrated the Passover. We now know that is the Last Supper. 
and then he left the Last Supper with the disciples and he went out to Gethsemane to pray. On Friday, those were his trials and his execution. On Saturday, everything was quiet. He was dead in the tomb. And on Sunday is the resurrection. Okay? The parable that we're about to read falls on Tuesday where Jesus is teaching in the temple and teaching on the Mount of Olives. And I put this timeline up because I want you to understand the tension in the air when Jesus comes into the Temple Mount on Tuesday and he starts teaching, okay? Just two days earlier on Sunday, he gets on a donkey. It wasn't an accident. He rides that animal into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Up to this point in his ministry, Jesus has been very hesitant to say openly that he's the Messiah because people don't really understand what Jesus means when he says he's the Messiah. They don't understand what the scriptures are talking about when they promise a Messiah. And so Jesus kind of keeps that hush-hush for most of his ministry. But when he gets on that donkey and he rides into town, he might as well have had a big banner over his head that said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Get the megaphone out. The Messiah's riding in. The Messiah's here. The Christ has come. It's a public declaration of who he is. And the very next day, he walks on to the Temple Mount to the turf of those who already have decided they want to kill him, and he clears them out of the temple. Any illusions you have of Jesus meek and mild and just sort of laid back, hippie style, wears a robe, slick back hair, easygoing guy, scratch it out of your brain. There would have been hundreds, if not thousands of people crammed into this temple area. For Jesus to clear them out would not have been a 30-second temper tantrum. It would not have been a five-minute deal. It would have been a prolonged, aggressive, loud, confrontational move by Jesus to clear everybody out of the temple. That's what has just happened in his life. And then on Tuesday, he walks right back into the same place to the very people that he just cleared out of there, to the very people who wanted to murder him, the very people that he basically held the sign up and said, I'm the Messiah, and he starts teaching, and he starts preaching. Some of you know there's a a fight coming up. It's between these two knuckleheads right here, okay? Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. Some of you don't care about fights. Some of you are really excited about this fight. One guy's an MMA fighter. One guy's a boxer, and they're going to box, and they're going to see, you know, who's the the best of the best. And they've been hyping the fight lately, okay? So the way you hype a fight is you schedule a press conference, and you invite all the cameras, and you get all the microphones and all that stuff, and you go wherever you're going to go. And basically, if you've watched any of these, you just have scripted insults that you say to the other person. Like, it's none of it's spontaneous. None of it's even really all that genuine. It's just a whole bunch of insults that they're saying to the other person so that you and I watch it on TV and say, Oh, wow. They really hate each other. Oh, it, what's going to happen? And it gets you curious and it gets you excited and it makes you want to open your wallet to pay for the fight, which is what the real end game is. They want you to purchase the fight. And there's all this hype and all this war of words leading up to a big fight. Okay? Now, I want to be clear. Jesus in the Temple Mount has nothing to do with a Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor press conference. It's not like that at all. But what I am telling you is there's a war of words going on here. And a fight is coming. 
It's not the kind of fight that you may expect if you're used to thinking from a worldly perspective. But a fight is coming. Jesus has openly declared to his enemies, I am the one that you have been waiting for. You're making plans to kill the one that God has promised to send for thousands and thousands of years. That's what he said to them when he rode in on the donkey. And he's saying to them, you've completely missed everything that God said about this temple. You've totally missed it. And he runs them out, highly confrontational. And now he comes back in on Tuesday to start teaching and to start preaching. And you can just imagine the glances when Jesus walks back in. Everybody's wondering, what's he going to do today? How's he going to top Sunday and Monday? Like, you know, the open messianic claim and the running everybody out in a rage. How's he going to top that? And the parable that we're about to look at comes on the heels of those events. Now, to make it really clear, if there's any question, if there's any debate about what Jesus thinks about the religious leaders and the religious establishment in Jerusalem, there's this parable. It's called an enacted parable, the cursing of the fig tree. You find it in Matthew. You find it in Mark. We're not going to read it this morning, but Bible scholars say, look, this is an enacted parable, and it illustrates Jesus' evaluation or his thoughts about the religious establishment in Jerusalem. So just briefly, let me mention this so we're all on the same page. On Monday, the day that he's going in to clear the temple, Jesus has his disciples with him. They're walking towards Jerusalem. They pass a fig tree. The gospel writers tell us it's not the season for figs. No one in their right mind would expect figs to be on that tree. Jesus walks up to the tree. He finds no figs on it. And he curses it. One gospel writer says immediately it withered. But you piece it together and you you figure out what they're talking about. And what you realize is that when they walk back by the tree the next day, it's totally dead. And the way that Matthew includes the story here and the way that Mark splits the story up and and includes it in what we're reading in the last week of Jesus' life, it's crystal clear that the, the cursing of this tree has nothing to do with figs at all. It's an enacted parable showing what Jesus thinks about the religious establishment in Jerusalem. You should have been bearing fruit. God gave you his law. He sent you the prophets. He gave you this sacrificial system. He gave you all of these blessings. And yet I come to you as the one you've been waiting for, and you make plans to kill me. And he pronounces this curse on this fig tree, and it withers and it dies. And it's a picture of what Jesus is saying to the religious establishment in Jerusalem. He's saying, you have totally, totally missed it. And as part of Jesus telling them that they've missed it, he teaches this parable. The big idea is really simple. God is calling people to humble repentance and genuine faith, and he is not emptied in empty professions of faith. He's looking for humble repentance. He's looking for genuine faith. And he is not interested in empty professions of faith. You understand that every one of the priests and the Levites and the temple authorities and the religious establishment guys in Jerusalem, every one of them could answer every Bible question you wanted to throw at them. They all professed to be followers of the one true God. They pledged it. They believed it. They thought they were really in. And Jesus is saying it's all empty. All of it. 
You're mistaken. And that's not what God's looking for is just some lip service where you can answer all the right questions. He's looking for humble repentance and genuine faith. That's the big idea. So in your Bible, look at Matthew 21. We're going to start in verse 23, and then we're going to read to the end of this parable. The Word of God says this. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said... By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And in the back of their mind, right, they're thinking, he just rode in on the donkey, claimed to be the Messiah. He just cleared the temple, ran everybody out of here. Now he's come back onto our turf, and he's teaching. On whose authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you, one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we look back on what we believe really happened in history. In the eternal Son of God becoming a man and living on this earth, performing miracles, teaching, healing, casting out demons. Father, when we look now at the last week of his life and we think about this parable of the two sons, Father, help us to understand the conversation, help us to understand the context, help us to understand the message. Father, give us eyes to see the truth this morning and give us hearts to respond in a way that honors you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start with two ideas that are not taught in the parable, okay? I told you, if you ignore the context, it's really easy to twist this particular story, and so I just want to be clear Two ideas that you're not going to find taught in the parable. And these are on the back of the outline in your bulletin this morning. Number one, the parable is not promoting a works-based system of salvation. Jesus is not here teaching in this parable that you earn your way with God. And if you ignored the context, you may sort of get a hint of that. 
When you look at these two sons and you say, well, you know, the hero of the story, the way that Jesus set the story up is that the good son initially kind of acts like a knucklehead. He says to his dad, I'm not going. There's no way I'm going to do that. But then he comes around and he does the right thing. He does the will of his father. And if you ignore what's going on, you may say, well, maybe Jesus is telling us like, look, you need to come around and you need to earn your way with God and you need to obey and you need to sort of pay or merit somehow your salvation. We know that's not what Jesus is teaching. One of the key reasons we know that's not what he's teaching is something called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith. This is an old idea. It goes back to the Reformation. Uh, This is, by the way, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So 500 years this year. And in the Reformation, the Reformers said, look, the way we make sense of Scripture is we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. It's called the analogy of faith. So if there's a passage in the Bible that you're not quite clear on, you go look for a clearer passage and you find a way to fit those two together. And you use the Bible to make sense of the Bible. There are dozens and dozens of passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that teach that salvation is by trusting in God and His promises. It's by trusting in what God has done for us through Jesus. It's not according to our good works. So we we compare Scripture and we say, okay, he's not teaching some sort of works-based salvation. But listen, it's worth reminding ourselves that that's not what he's teaching. And it's worth reminding ourselves that Jesus is not teaching a works-based system of salvation because you and I are highly prone to lean in the direction of thinking, I need to earn my way with God. God is only pleased with me, we're, we're prone to think, when I do good things, right? In our sinful, fallen nature, we all sort of drift in this direction. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Recently, these are on my mind, we took a a mission team to Canada. And one of the things we did on the trip is we had several opportunities just to go out in the community and share the gospel with people. And so the first time we did this, me and JD, we went out together. And uh, it was about to rain. It looked really nasty outside. And we're sort of knocking on doors in this community. We didn't find anybody home, nobody home, first couple houses. Then we see this guy sitting out on his front lawn. So we go up and we talk to him. His name is Scott. Super nice guy, very friendly. We talk to him about work and the neighborhood and all sorts of things. And then we sort of start steering the conversation towards the gospel. And Scott says, you know, I believe in God and I've heard about Jesus. And, you know, there's some people do right and some people do wrong. There's sin is a real thing. And, you know, he's sort of tracking along with us. And then we just sort of press it to him and say, okay, Scott, how do you think a person is forgiven by God? Or how do you think they go to heaven when they die? Because he had talked about heaven. And his answer is, well, you know, I guess you just got to be good enough. Well, how good? Well, yeah, you know, enough. Like, just more than bad? He didn't really know, but it's just this idea of, you just, if you're a good person, you get to go and That's about it. And so we shared the gospel with him, the truth of the gospel, that you can't be good enough, you're not good enough, that Jesus was good enough for you, and you need to trust in him and turn from your sin. We shared all of that with him. Two days later, I'm walking on the other side of town, and instead of JD, I get paired up with Emma, my oldest daughter, and Haley Condry. And we're at this park, and uh, the pastor that we're with, he says, I want you to go around. You're going to pray for some folks, and if you get the chance, share the gospel with them. So we start walking around, and we bump into this guy named Michael. 
He's about my age. He's headed somewhere to meet some friends, and we start talking to him. And it's almost like the exact same conversation on repeat. Almost word for word. The exact same idea. And in my mind, I'm listening to Michael, and I'm thinking, it sounds exactly like Scott. I wonder if these two guys know each other. Maybe they've compared notes since the other night. Maybe Scott tried to give Michael the answers. I don't know. Well, they didn't know each other. They didn't meet together. They didn't talk about it. That's just default mode for human beings. And in your life, it may not be a Michael or a Scott. It may be your grandma. It may be your neighbor. It may be a coworker. It may be somebody in your, your you know, schoolroom or your, your grade at school or whatever. But you know people who have this idea just sort of ingrained in them. You, just, you get to heaven by being a good person. And it's worth reminding ourselves, none of us are good people. And on top of the fact that we're not good people, and the Bible's clear on that, not only are we bad people, we're dead people. Spiritually dead. We don't just need to be a little bit better so that God will love us. We need God to bring us to life so that we can love Him. So we're just making, making sure we're all on the same page and we're looking at this parable and we say one thing Jesus is not teaching is a works-based system of salvation. Here's another thing He's not teaching. The parable is not encouraging anyone to sin now and repent later. It's not encouraging anyone to sin now and repent later. You can see, again, if you ignore the context, how you may take that away and say, well, look, the hero of the parable badmouths his dad to his face, but then in the end he does the right thing and it's all, everyone lives happily ever after. So I'm going to take that to mean, I'm going to do what I want to do now, but at some point later I know I'm going to come around and I'm going to you know, get my act together. I'm going to be right with God. You probably don't know people who would say out loud that that's their plan, but I promise you that's their plan. Like, I'm kind of having fun with what I'm doing right now. That may be your plan. Kind of having fun with what I'm doing. And at some point later, I'll, I'll sort of get serious about my faith. It's not a, a license or an encouragement to sin now and repent later. I read a story this week about D.L. Moody. And he was preaching, it was in the 1800s, he's preaching in Chicago, and this particular Sunday night was the largest crowd that he had ever preached to up to that point in his ministry. Famous evangelist D.L. Moody, and he's preaching away on a Sunday night, shares the gospel, he talks about Jesus, he's opening the word with these folks, and at the end of his message, this is how he ends. He says, I want you to go home. And I want you to think about what we've talked about for the next week. And when we come back, I'm going to challenge you to respond. I want you to go home, think about it for a week, pray about it. When you come back next week, I'm going to challenge you to some sort of response. So he calls his buddy, Iris Sankey. They were a, a team, uh, sort of like Billy Graham and his guy, George Beverly Shea, uh, preaching in music. Well, it was D.L. Moody and Iris Sankey. So he calls up Ira and he says, Ira, lead the last hymn. And they sing the last hymn. And they're getting to the end of the last hymn. And the hymn in the building starts to get drowned out by noise out on the street. So this kind of reminds me of our missionary send-off service this year. We're in here singing and it just totally gets drowned out by the apocalyptic hailstorm outside. Well, they're singing the last hymn, and they hear this noise and commotion on the street, and they go out, and they realize there's a fire in Chicago. 
At that point, they just thought it was a fire. We look back on it and we call it the Great Chicago Fire. Massive parts of the city engulfed in flames, burned to the ground. Hundreds of people lost their life, including people who were in the church service where Moody was preaching. And Moody said, for the rest of my life, I regret at the end of that service not calling people to respond to Jesus immediately. I told them to wait. He said, never again will I tell people to wait to respond to the gospel. Listen, if your plan is I'm going to do my thing now and then at some point later I'm going to get serious about Jesus, you need a new plan. You need a new plan. You're not promised later or tomorrow. I certainly hope the city of Odessa doesn't burn with fire this week, but you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's coming down the road in our life or in your life. On top of all the unknowns, let me just remind you of this. The sin that you're engaging in now for this period of time while you get ready to repent, it's not going to make repentance easier down the road. Sin today will not make repentance tomorrow easier for you. Sin today will only harden your heart toward the very act of repentance. It will never be easier for you to repent than it is right now. It won't be easier tomorrow. It won't be easier in a week. It won't be easier when you're out of college. It won't be easier when you have kids. It won't be easier when you retire. It will never be easier to repent than it is right now. So when Jesus tells this parable, we pay attention to the the context and the back and forth and the dialogue. Jesus is not telling anyone that they ought to sin now and repent later. So what's the point? What do we take away from this really short parable? Well, The reason we backed up, if you look at the text, the reason we backed up and talked about verse 23 to 27 is that this discussion between Jesus and the religious leaders explains why he told the parable and what he was trying to teach. These guys come to Jesus. He's already challenged them on on their turf. And he starts to preach on Tuesday after riding in, claiming to be the Messiah, after clearing the temple, and they say, hey, Who gave you the right to walk in here and do what you're doing? On whose authority? Who do you think you are? In Jesus, in classic Jesus fashions, he answers with a question. He said, I'll tell you what. You answer one question of mine and I'll tell you. John's baptism. From God or man? From heaven or man? Which one? And this is one of those scenes you wish you could see on the Jumbotron. I wish I could put it up on the screen where they sort of go off to the side and huddle up together and say, I didn't think he was going to ask us that question. We don't have a good answer for that. I mean, on the one hand, if we say it was from God, he's going to look at us and say, well, why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you turn from your sin and listen to John? But on the other hand, there are a ton of people here for the Passover. The city of Jerusalem would swell to over a million people. They came from all over Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee. They all knew about John and they all believed he was a prophet. And they said, look, we've got a million people in town that will stone us if we say John was a, a moon bat. We can't throw John under the bus. 
But if we say that it was from God, we're throwing ourselves under the bus. So the brilliant answer they come back with is, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you on whose authority I'm speaking and riding in as the Messiah and clearing the temple. But I will tell you a parable. And the point of this parable is you heard John the Baptist, but you didn't really listen to what he said. You went out. The Bible says that people went out from Jerusalem to hear him. They all went out to check out this crazy man in camel hair eating locusts and dunking people in the river in the wilderness. They all wanted to see that. But they really didn't listen to him. So the question that we have to answer is, what was John talking about? What was he telling people to do? What was his message? And his message was so, so simple. Here it is. First, John called sinners to repent of their sin. He called sin, sin. He didn't make excuses for it. He didn't try to coddle people in it. He didn't try to explain it away with psychology or anything else. He just said, look, sin is sin, and you need to turn from it. If this is your sin, turn. If this is your sin, turn. And he would give specific examples. Turn from sin. Look what we read in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This is what he he was preaching. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and uh, his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river, Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, those are the people that Jesus is talking to in this conversation, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John saw him coming out to his baptism, and he said, you brood of vipers. What a welcome to baptism. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He knew they weren't there for repentance or forgiveness or baptism. They were there to see the show. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Repent, repent, repent. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in your life. It's not something you do only one time. It's something you do every single day over and over and over. Changing your mind about sin, confessing it, and turning away from it. And John told these people to repent, and they refused. The second thing that we would say of John's message is this. John called sinners to trust in Jesus. He called people to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. Listen to John chapter 1. And as we read these verses, just listen to all the things that he says about Jesus. John chapter 1. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. That's John saw Jesus. And John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. 
I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He says he's the Lamb of God, the substitute that's going to die for our sins. He says he's pre-existent. Even though John's older, he says Jesus was before me. He's always been. There never was a time when he wasn't. He says he's the one who baptizes with the Spirit, not just with water. This is the Son of God. He's telling people, this is the one. This is the one. How many different ways can I say it? This is the one you've been waiting for. Believe in Jesus. Look, John was a crazy man in a lot of different ways, but he had a really simple message. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Jesus is in the temple And he tells this parable to a group of people, Pharisees and Sadducees, planning to murder him, who years earlier had walked out of Jerusalem, out into the wilderness, and listened to John. They saw him baptizing people, they heard him preach, they listened to his message, and they walked away completely unchanged. They had all these great things to say about themselves and their relationship with God. We love God. We're the chosen ones of God. God loves us the best. And Jesus says, you have totally missed it. You're like a son who tells his father he's going to go work in the field and produce a harvest and bring in a crop, and then he doesn't do it. You're saying all the right things, but there's nothing behind it. You didn't listen to John. God sent him to you to tell you to repent and to believe, and you totally ignored it. And Jesus says, here's the craziest part. The tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, the people you think are unreachable by God and his grace, are now entering the kingdom. And it's not because they're good people. It's because they're not, and they admit it. And they change their mind about sin, and they turn in trust to follow Jesus. Listen, I'm super glad that you're here at church this morning. I'm super glad when you go to Bible study in Sunday school. Wednesday nights are starting in a couple weeks. I hope you'll come to Wednesday nights. We have a great time on Wednesday nights. But you understand, you can come to all of those things and go through all of those motions and check all of those boxes and be no different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees looking at Jesus planning to kill him, listening to John, refusing to do what he says. That can be you. Here, every time the doors are open, you've got all the right answers. You can answer all the questions and check all the boxes, but you don't do the two things that God has called you to do. Turn from your sin. Change your mind about what sin is. Don't make excuses for it. Don't blame someone else for it. Change your mind about sin that leads to a change in life and trust in Jesus and follow him. When you get to that point in the parable, you almost say, well, those cookies are on the bottom shelf. That's not hard. That's not complicated. That's not difficult for anyone to understand. Any child in the three-year-old Sunday school class can understand that. The question is, Will you do it? Will you change your mind about sin 
And will you trust in Jesus? And I don't mean will you do it one time and pray a magical prayer and then check that box off and move on. We're not talking about box checking. We're talking about continual daily repentance, continual daily dependence on Christ. That's the call for you this morning. Let me pray for you. Father, we're grateful for your word. And Father, we are grateful for the hope that we have in Jesus. Father, this parable gives us great hope that even sinners, especially sinners, can be saved by your grace. Father, I pray for those in the room this morning and I pray that you would work in our hearts, convict us of sin. Father, draw us to yourself. Grant us repentance that we might turn and follow Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are here who have delayed that decision. Who have had the mindset of getting right with you later. And I pray that they would do that today. And Father, I pray for those in the room who are very religious and who are also very far from you. And Father, I pray that you would expose them, that you would show them the dangerous game that they're playing. Father, that you would change their heart and draw them to the truth. Father, be honored as we sing together, as we lift our voices together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.